Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, February 11th, 2022. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Hi John. Hi, John. Hi, Noah. Hi, Abe. Hi, John boy. Um, that dates me. You guys are you guys don't even know what I'm talking That's about. When I say hi. Of course Thank you. Do. Okay. Not that dated. Okay. <laughs> it's pretty dated. That was like 1972. It was, you know, pre-21st century. Was a, was, a, was a sensation. That's all I can say. Um good night. Um, it was good night. It, it's right. Good night, grandpa. Good night, Mary Ellen. Good night, John Boy. Good night. Yeah, oh yeah. Um, all right. Anyway. A uh, nice trip down uh, memory lane, um, but uh, we are we're on the horns of a dilemma here because we have uh, many things we wanted to uh, relay to you, uh, questioning uh, the mental uh, fitness of the president of the United States and his capacity to serve as as president. But um, Noah is mad, and in fact, <laughs> we're all a little mad. And so maybe we'll go with the mad part and then flow into the not mad part. And here's what we're mad about. So I turn on Morning Joe this morning, which is something I don't do very often. And it's around 7.30. And um, uh, they are having a very alarmed conversation about inflation. The guest is uh, the proprietor of a uh, high-end supermarket chain in the New York, Connecticut area called Stu Leonard's, and he's talking about inflation and how it works and how the dairy farmers who supply him with his milk want to you know, go up uh, 20 cents a gallon, and what's he going to do? He's got to let them. I mean, he's been working with them for 30 years, and maybe if the supply chain problem starts settling down, here's something you can do. Buy the generic. Don't buy Land O'Lakes butter. You could buy Stu Leonard's butter. You can buy the generic butter in the supermarket. Uh, where you are, you know, it tastes exactly the same, and it'll cost you a lot less money, and that's how you handle a moment like this. And uh, uh, Mika Brzezinski's uh, face seemed to drain its color uh, as as uh, as this as he was this guy's talking very cheerfully uh, because of course the stats came out last night and we are running at seven and a half percent inflation the highest number in forty years every month now we get an inflation stat that is uh, undeniable and inarguably horrible a lot of it being driven by cars, but not just by cars. All products are more and more expensive. And after desperately attempting for years, for a year now, to downgrade, uh, talk down, consider transitory or ignore inflation around September, October, uh, the White House started to make noises like it understood it needed to do something. Liberal pundits did not want to think about it, did not want to talk about it. And then I noticed yesterday, the day before yesterday, Chris Hayes, also of MSNBC, said, you know, look, I mean, a lot of things are going into this. But, you know, people feel like they're getting hosed at the supermarket there. Boy, there's not much you can do about that politically. And then uh, Lee Stefanik, the Republican from New York, tweeted something about inflation. And Chris Hayes tweeted at her, what would Republicans in the House do to combat inflation? Like, it's not fair. It's not fair that Biden is the president. uh, Democrats are uh, running the House and the Senate. And uh, he is now recognizing that the political system is going to blame the party in power for the economic, uh, the macroeconomic circumstances and the daily pocketbook circumstances of the American people. And um, as uh, I sang this uh, months ago. Uh, I can't even remember in relation to what, but I'm going to sing the first verse again, if you will excuse me, of Randy Travis's big hit, I Told You So, okay? Where he says, if I told you that I realize you're all I ever wanted and it's killing me to be so far away, would you tell me that you love me too and would we cry together? Or would you simply laugh at me and say, I told you so. Oh, I told you so. This is I told you so day. Okay? Because it's not just about inflation, which we have now been talking about since April 
I believe, maybe March, uh, 11 months, where we've been saying this is the thing. No one's ever lived through inflation, you know, who is under uh, 40 or 50 or has a memory of inflation or uh, under under 50 years old. And uh, and you don't know what it's like. It's really bad. It's really, really bad. People feel that like they're getting poorer every week. Uh, life is harder to live. That is a that is not, you know, um, an impression or a feeling. It is a it is an individual experience duplicated over 150 million households in the United States. Everybody who lives paycheck to paycheck. And uh, we told you that it was going to be bad. And now Chris Hayes and Morning Joe suddenly that it is dawning on them how bad it is. And it's so unfair because Joe Biden and the Democrats are not responsible. Oh, yeah, they're responsible and they are going to be held responsible. So that's I told you so for the news. Now, Noah is like chomping at the bit. I told you so on (laughs) 10 other things. Because every day, if you're a conservative columnist, is like living through the 20th Party Congress, where all of a sudden the truth can be told. That was the event. After the death of Stalin in 1943, in which Communist 53. Party 53, Communist Party led by Nikita Khrushchev at that point, get to explain all the crimes that we, you know, we all were aware of, but didn't get to talk about for the last 25 years. Um, today in 538, allow me the runway here to, to really fr- expand on my frustrations. 538 has this piece out this morning. It's become clear to many economists that American inflation isn't just a supply chain issue. Our economic response, namely the trillions of dollars of COVID-19 stimulus paid out over the last 24 months, appears to be a meaningful differentiator. Wow, I wish somebody had thought of the prospect that spending $6 trillion, injecting that much liquidity into the economy, might overheat it, might have an inflationary effect. Oh, yeah, all of us have been saying that forever. And also, me, in July of that last year, talking about the inflationary induced paranoia spiral because inflation has some profound psychological consequences, many of which are deleterious to the interests of the party in power. Who could have possibly predicted something like that? Oh, yeah, us. But by Today, way, I just want just to add, not yeah. only us, but quite prominently, Larry Summers, Larry Summers also in April or May and San was Francisco dismissed. Fed in yeah. September saying the same things about our really necessary, absolutely necessary response to COVID that we could just pay people in perpetuity not to work. And there wouldn't be any consequences for that, political, economic, or otherwise. Today in the New York Times, David Leonard, that Cassandra of uh, accumulated wisdom, has a quote from a political scientist named Matt Glassman, which is getting all the attention today because it's so profound. Him, quote, don't trust substantive experts to make policy decisions that balance competing values or stakeholder interests. That's the sort of thing, you know, that should be left to elected representatives. That's a very wise statement, a statement that I wrote in September of 2020. Quote, it is the responsibility of elected officials in a representative democracy to balance a complex society's competing interest. A society that cedes that duty to any one sector, regardless of how relevant it happens to be, invite any number of unforeseen consequences. Uh, and those consequences aren't unforeseen. We foresaw them. Here's another one. Who could have anticipated that a vaccination mandate would create a de facto regime in which primarily the working class were left to patronize substandard services and they'd kind of resent that and they'd kind of use their political power to affect change? What you're seeing in Canada was predicted by me in April of 2020 before even the vaccines were an issue when we were talking about vaccine mandates and vaccine passports and how it would create a de facto segregation regime. We talked about it, we foresaw it, and now all these people are coming out of the woodwork like it's their own innovation, and it's enough to drive you crazy. Well, okay, Abe, in your, uh, yes, this is a revolution piece from uh, the summer of, uh, was a year ago? I'm sorry, I can't even remember what anything was. 2020, you said, look, you take our allies where we can get them. You know, if 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 people are going to stand against this, you know, tide of totalitarianism that we have had substantive disagreements with in the past, Glenn Greenwald, I think, being the most interesting example, you take your you take your allies where you can get them when the when the war is this important. Does that hold in this case if the conventional wisdom is now shifting in the direction that we wanted to in which a. The COVID regime is now seen as something that is destructive and that we need to get rid of. That um, liberals are increasingly getting frustrated and annoyed with 
the COVID hawks among them uh, who are, um, in their view, I think, prolonging not only things that are making their lives difficult, but are threatening their political futures. Should we be gloating and yelling and saying this is no fair because, you know, for the last two years we've been saying this and you made fun of us and you scoffed and you tried to deplatform us? Or should we be welcoming <clears throat> this change of heart? Both. Because without this change of heart, there would be there. There is no prospect for an actual change of policy, as we've also always said all along, um, any substantive change in policy here will happen when liberals and uh, the Biden administration and Democrats sort of come on board and realize that that continuing with uh, restrictions, unnecessary restrictions would be a political liability. So we have to welcome their, the change of heart just as a practical matter. But we should definitely gloat because even as they are coming around to this, as uh, what Chris Hayes says proves, um, there's still a sort of lack of responsibility here, right? What would Republicans have done? What could anyone do? This is this is this is this was out of our hands. This was out of the president's hands. Well, and there's a, the, the lack of coherent messaging on the part of Democrats who are up for reelection in the midterms is it points to exactly that, Abe. And I think so. Gas is four bucks a gallon in, in the DMV area where I live here in the Washington, D.C. area. And I've seen hilarious things that I wish I could get my hands on one because I would slap one on the next gas pump I have to stop at. But people are, around the country, people are putting up stickers. It's a picture of Biden saying, I did that. And he's pointing and they're putting them on gas pumps to point at the price. And then the gas station owners have to peel them off. I mean, yeah, it's kind of obnoxious, but but that the, the people are speaking very loudly and clearly to the liberal elite right now. They are speaking loudly and clearly to the Biden administration. And I have to say, I don't I see some Democratic governors shifting. I see some, you know, here and there we're seeing some some movement. I don't see any of that from the Biden administration. They've doubled down on masking. They've doubled. They're doubling down on the foreign policy stuff like I do not see him responding to the American people right now. Okay, we tone. need to we're going to get to the uh, the full the full Biden uh, catastrophe. But we but I want to. When <clears throat> Noah, we started the daily podcast and we we had a, we were trying to sort through these strands like you were talking about the danger of the vaccine passport Nine months before we had vaccines, you were like, we could end up with a two-level society. Now, we did end up with a two-level society, although I, I don't really think it's vaccine and non-vaccine. That's, that's what's, what's interesting, because I think basically, according to the numbers we see, I don't know, 20% of people in America are going to end up not, never having gotten a shot. That's nothing. That's, like, that's, not, that's not really a two-tiered society. What we have is working-class people spending eight hours a day in masks, in service to upper middle class thought workers who stay at home and wear whatever they want to wear and go on Zoom and complain that Zoom is so hard on them and they don't have to wear a mask. And then kids in masks who have no political power to complain. So we have a bifurcated society of the masked and the unmasked because there are people who can opt out of masking simply by dint of their of their level of income. And yet demand and the culture is demanding of uh, everybody else that they live behind these uh, pieces of paper or cloth uh, for hours at a time. That is that was the bifurcation. It wasn't actually that if you didn't have the vaccine, uh, you know, you wouldn't be able to go anywhere. That turned out not quite to be the case. I mean, um, it's interesting, though, the rubber is being the road in a place like New York today, I believe is the deadline, like uh, 3,000 city workers are due to be fired for refusing to vaccinate. I will bet you that doesn't happen. I will bet you that somehow that number that is somehow pushed into the future. But um, that that the vaxxed and the unvaxxed is not quite where we ended up. Um, and it's interesting because the class stuff, uh, which I... The class stuff is very interesting. It is as though uh, liberals who believe themselves to be on the side of workers and, you know, are excited. By the way, also in like thought, you know, like are thrilled because, you know, BuzzFeed has a union. Like, you know, the people at BuzzFeed are, you know, going down into the coal mines 
breathing in coal dust and having to, you know, you know, bend over 12 hours a day. I'm so glad they have a union because they're they're just so exploited and their working conditions are so terrible and they really need to have collective bargaining with the VC who is, you know, who is losing money, keeping them keeping their jobs going, but whatever. So congratulations for the labor action that has gotten these thought workers who have no need of the kinds of protections for which labor unions became necessary in the first half of the 20th century. They don't need it, but great, wonderful, congratulations. They're gonna increase the cost of doing business. They're gonna lose their jobs and their institutions are gonna go out of business. And I will dance on the graves of those institutions. Nonetheless, they love workers, right? They so love workers that they want to keep them in masks. They want to see them fired if they don't comply. And Juliet Kayam, a professor at Harvard, wants uh, authorities to go slash the trucks of the truckers who are who are who are blockading, slash their trucks, shoot them. It's hilarious. She's like, okay, this is enough. This is now this is now a national security issue. Get them, arrest them, slash the tires of their trucks, and then remove the trucks from where they are. Really? How are you going to remove the trucks if you slash the tires? Do you know how much a truck weighs? <laughs> I understand that you drive a Prius, you moron. What is the matter? Really? You teach She's at Harvard? She's a Tesla driver. She looks like a Tesla driver to me. But you anyway. teach at Harvard? <laughs> What do you teach? Idiot 101? I mean, I understand you're a, she's a she's a terrorism expert who never saw any terrorism. I, this is everything has gone crazy. Uh, there's a there's People a flip side to that. So the the you know the uh, hyper the effete hyper educated left is pretending to be a labor movement when their class organizes and then when they actually see a labor movement they're horrified by it as they should be because the working class is moving away from the liberal coalition. But then there's the other side of that on the left the more classically Marxian types who uh, are at war with the wokes because they have two competing frameworks through which you should view all of existence. Theirs is class, and they don't like the fact that they're imposing that the race uh, framework is, is you know, becoming more prominent than their framework. And they're pretending to be Marxist revolutionaries today. They're out there singing the Internationale, pretending as though that this movement is the vanguard of the proletariat that will usher in a new worker's yeah, a new worker state. And finally, you know, supplant neoliberalism as the guiding ethos of the American left. Um, they're they're playing at their own game, too. Everybody's dressing up and putting makeup on and pretending to be engaged in, in politics that they've invented in their in their own heads. It's all solipsism. By the way, this is, you know, I hate to constantly harp back to the 70s and 80s. But this is exactly what happened both in America and in Great Britain in the 70s and 80s. The revolt against the prevailing liberal ethos was a working class revolt. That was the Reagan Democrats. That was the hard hat revolt in New York. And it was the Thatcher revolution in Britain. And if you remember, the big, big cultural war in Britain was that the coal miners and a couple of other miners were Marxist. Arthur Scargill, who was the head of the coal miners union, was an actual Stalinist. And he attempted to call a general strike, the purpose of which was to somehow create a coup that would take Thatcher out of power. And it absolutely boomeranged and it strengthened the right for 10 years. What did Ronald Reagan do when there was a labor action against him in the first nine months of his presidency? An absolutely outrageous labor action. Air traffic controllers walking off the job using their power over the air traffic control system to attempt to ground American aircraft. The Reagan administration fired the air traffic controllers en masse. The strike was illegal and they were fired. And that broke the back of the labor union movement in the country because it misread the room. And right now, look, I, I, I'm not going to sing the praises of the of the convoy. I, I, I th this is a very complicated issue. I don't like this kind of this kind of civil disobedience that goes beyond civil disobedience into actual human disruption of ordinary people's lives. This is not for me. I don't like it, but it is. But read the room, people. I thought you guys were the tribunes of the of the of the less well to do. Or are they only tribunes of the dependent? Right. Are they only tribunes of the who 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 are they tribunes of people who don't work? Well, that's who are I on welfare. 
So people that's... who need the government to give them things. That's not who these truckers are. They just work their asses off 80 hours a week, you know, busting themselves and doing physical labor so that you get your goods in your house, Juliet Kayam, so that you can call for their tires to be slashed. Well, and that is the point at which to, to speak to the to the tone that the Biden administration is setting. That's where the real crux of the issue is. It, it strikes me particularly on inflation. So he uh, President Biden had a sit down with Lester Holt of NBC News and one excerpt in one of the questions Lester Holt said, look, in July, you said inflation was transitory, but, you know, obviously it's getting worse. What's your definition of transitory? That was a perfect moment for Biden to craft a message that reached those hardworking people who are suffer who who work, who earn money, who pay taxes and who are suffering every time they go to refill their gas tanks and go to the grocery store. Instead, you know what he said? He said, oh, you're being a wise guy. He was contemptuous of the question, contemptuous of the question, because you know what? Inflation doesn't affect him. It doesn't affect the people who work for him. It doesn't affect the people in the media who interview him. It, it, if it does, it's a minor blip in their budget. It does not really keep them up at night. That is where he had he has had so many opportunities to speak to that issue a Democratic Party coalition issue. And he refuses or is contemptuous of it every time. And he should pay a price for that. And he has in the polls, obviously. Is it contempt? I'm not sure it's contempt. He's like a cornered animal. He doesn't sounds, have... it, he's dismissive. Let's say dismissive. But not again, I, I don't know if he's dismissive because you're dismissive when you're like, eh, you know what you're talking about. It is transitory. And you're, you know, like there's a there's an arrogance to dismissiveness and contempt. I, I don't I didn't read that as arrogance. It's more like, why are you giving me a hard time? You're supposed to be on my side. What's the matter yes, with but, you? Didn't you he, get your marching he... orders? Yeah, well, there's there, some of that, but he should be able to speak to the issue itself. I'm not which, saying he yeah. shouldn't. I'm, sa- I'm, I'm, I'm saying I don't think he was dismissive or contemptuous. It reads as contempt to the people listening to him. Let's okay. just let's just I'll, put it that I'll, way. I'll, I'll tell you where there is contempt for okay. it for it, and this and this is something that he's he's resorted to multiple times when this comes up. His answer always involves, well, there are a number of Nobel laureates. 14 of them, actually, who tell me such and such. Uh, And in this case, they tell me these are the same ones, by the way, that said that um, that the stimulus uh, would would be anti inflationary. Right. That was that was these are the same 14 Nobel laureates that that he would um, summon in interviews at the start of this thing. Now, the same 14 Nobel laureates tell him that uh, we will begin to see relief at some point during this year. That is contemptuous because that is resorting to this purely abstract, academic, uh, theoretical nonsense that has already proved uh, in the real world to be garbage. I, I, again, I mean, it, this is semantics. It doesn't really matter uh, whether he's, you know, dismissive or contemptuous or if he's like a cornered rat, I suppose, because what matters is what comes out of his mouth and what, how it's used or how it might be used against him or how he can use it for him. But um, I look at that as like a, a de- desperate. It's like um, he's desperately clinging to his guns and religion. I mean, that that's him saying, I have 14 Nobel laureates. Yeah, but the message I mean, to the that's people what is they told me, and they want a Nobel. You know, like but the, they but the want, message like, to Rick people is I don't she care. She won a Nobel, and she said that the inflation would be deflationary. I mean, it's like fourteen Nobel laureates. Like, who are you talking to? Do you think when you say fourteen Nobel laureates that somebody was standing online at a Wegman's and whose bill is fourteen dollars more than it was last week is like? Oh, it's okay. It's 14 Nobel laureates say it's going to be better soon. Right. That's not that's not reassuring. It's terrifying. 14 <laughs> Nobel laureates thought this wasn't going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> You're kidding. Right. Like, Nobody yeah. knows anything. If yeah, that's- <laughs> right. Right. Okay. So let um so in the nobody knows here's what's interesting to me. Let's go back again in the I told you so thing to Noah saying in September of 2020, politicians are in charge here. And they're the ones who have to balance trade-offs because they represent us and they're the ones, right? Do you remember how controversial a sentiment that was? Yes, I do. You know, okay, I want to know do. the you know, and I know the yes. post that that yes. sentence graced it on yes. my defense of the Trump administration for saying for lobbying for in-person education. That was anathema in right. September okay. 2020. By the way, that was the time when all the schools were open and all the kids were in school and everything was open, and you're crazy for thinking anything was closed. Right. But here's it's not just that it's the idea that 
we were in an unprecedented pandemic, and what we needed to do was cede all authority to unelected public health officials. They were in charge. They were in charge, and it was what they said that went because this was a health crisis, and politicians aren't doctors, and there was... There was Fauci, there was Deborah Burks, there was, I don't know, you know, there was um, there was Doogie Hauser Zucker in New York State. Yes, in fact, the New York State Health Commissioner, an idiot named uh, Howard Zucker, whom I have the misfortune to know personally, um, was in fact the model for Doogie Hauser. If you want to know why tens of thousands, you know, thousands of people were sent back to nursing home sites because Doogie Hauser sent them there. Congratulations, everybody. Doogie Hauser MD. Those were the people that, according to conventional wisdom, needed to be running things. We needed to cede things to their management. Now, in the United States, a representative democracy, we cede nothing, theoretically, to the management of experts, actually. What, but by, by which I mean, Abraham Lincoln ceded the management of the of the of the Army of the Republic to George McClellan and lived to rue the day because McClellan was only interested in 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 maintaining the fealty of his soldiers and not you know not getting his weaponry dirty or getting their uniforms dirty and he needed McClellan to fight and McClellan wasn't fighting and eventually he had to step in as the elected president and force his hand and change the way the war was being fought because you can't cede anything in an elect in a in a in a democracy to unelected people who know better presidents don't do it in presidents don't do it in wars when they really could like they could say i don't know anything about how what, what troop deployments are what they should be and there's all this there's all this contempt on the part of a lot of you know generals who write books about political interference but they're they're wrong like Everything is a trade-off. Every choice that is made in the United States that governments do, do, yes, no, on, off, whatever, is a trade-off. And somebody who is, who is answerable to the, to the public has to make those choices. And there was this moment for about a year, or maybe less, but in which the idea was we can't trust the people that we elect we're going to give it to these other people and we're just going to whatever they say goes. The key is to understand that these interests that politicians are empowered to meet and, and, and meet in a satisfactory way because they have the authority of a mandate, political mandate, is that these interests that are in competition are valid. Two perfectly valid competing interests. You got to determine who wins and who loses in the game of life. It's not a fun job, but it's nevertheless one that you can't say that one group is completely dismissible. And that's what we did for a year and a half. We said, well, these technocratic functionaries have our best interests at heart. Any interest that doesn't align with that is not a valid interest. It should not compete and is therefore dismissed. That's where we went wrong. That's where we went into a technocratic, uh, a, a technocratic functionary-led government that couldn't resolve conflicts. It just buried them and the conflicts persist. And that's the other danger, which I do remember us warning uh, early on in the podcast, is that once you cede the power to those technocrats, it's very hard to claw it back because they want to keep it. And there are plenty of craven elected officials who want to outsource the decision making to them so that they don't have to bear the burden of, of answering for it. And that is short term thinking with long term dangers, right? Because it feels good at the time. You're like, I don't I Look, I consulted with the experts and everything. But you're the one that people are going to hold responsible. You might as well get, you know, dig deep into it and get your hands dirty and think about these trade-offs because if everything doesn't go well, the boulder is going to fall on your head. But, you know, it, it became worse <clears throat> than just seeding these things and, and trusting the experts. Trusting the experts became a movement in itself. So, so there's everything became entrenched. Um, so it was no longer even about sort of um, doing what may be practical um, or relevant. It was, it was everything now was sort of tied up into the ideology of expertiseism. You know, this is and, that's yeah. yeah. So cultism, no, I, I, just so basically add, cultism, right? 
I right. mean, you're talking about subordinating your own critical thinking to the judgment of a but, class, a cast of presumed betters. But they also, I will say the reason that's an important point is that then when there were legitimate criticisms of those public health experts by people like us or, or parents going, why can't we reopen schools? The public health experts, I know, I know this from personal experience in DC, the head of our Department of Health, who the mayor was constantly citing as the reason why they couldn't reopen anything. She claimed when citizens and actually, you know, city council members were asking her questions, she's like, stop bullying me. You're bullying me. I'm an expert. How dare you be held accountable for what you claim to be the, your expertise? She claimed to be bullied. And this was actually another common theme you saw is that they they that because the war became, as Abe says, its own sort of symbolic uh, effort to hold up these experts, you couldn't criticize them either. So the politicians were punting to them and then you couldn't criticize them because it was bullying the experts. And, this and there's not no okay, chance of, of any and there's no chance of any pragmatic change because it's a movement and has to go on and has to fight for itself. I mean, look, you know, there's a lot of hope. There's been a lot of hope that Eric Adams, the new mayor of New York, is going to, you know, ch change things up and try to, uh, you know, be sensible and do things in a sensible way. And in fact, with the crime wave in New York, which is like incredibly serious, crime was up 60 percent week over week last week. And, uh, you know, there is a genuine crime surge in New York and he has moved 600 cops off desks back into patrol roles. Uh, it, it's a large department, but uh, that's a lot of people. Um, but uh, here's what Eric Adams said yesterday, because, by the way, the indoor mask mandate is still in place in New York City, it turns out, since even though the state of New York lifted it, every county, you know, and every municipality can, he has not removed it. So here's what he said in response to, uh, to uh, questions from reporters yesterday who, who pointed out that the rate of full vaccination in New York City the rate of full vaccination, two shots, is 75%. Adams chuckled about the progress needed to convince his health advisors uh, to suggest dropping the venue mandate. I'm sure knowing them, because they're very conservative, they're going to say 100%. And you know what? I look at that and I go, oh, well, another failed mayoralty. I mean, is this serious? Is this, is this really where he is? I understand maybe he doesn't want fights on multiple fronts he's got a city that got vaccinated city is three quarters vaccinated the omicron rate has declined by 95 percent and he is joking about how it's going to take a hundred it's going to take a hundred percent vaccination for him to remove a mask mandate well he wasn't being serious though like you just said he was joking it was no you know, he wasn't really joking of his experts he wasn't being dismissive. He was being, he said, they're very conservative. And I listened to them. I mean, he was joking about something about which he should not joke. Meaning we're not there yet at 75%. I don't know what, not, they're going to have a hundred. So I'll come down somewhere, you know, in the 85 to 90. I mean, I don't even know what he's saying is the point. But, but, but his reading of the room in New York is th this is whom he doesn't want to piss off. Or the mask hawks. And so I, I don't know. I don't know where this is going, but that is a that is a disturbing portent. Now, let's go to Biden, because we started. We had the Lester Holt interview uh, where he's a yeah, wise guy. eh? You're asking me a question about inflation. How dare you? Right. I mean, you're a wise guy. But then then there was also the. Uh, uh, amazing triptych, right, where he said, um uh, you know, there was no way we were going to hold Ukraine. I mean, Iran. I mean, Afghanistan together. Iraq. I think you said Iraq. Iraq. Did I say Iran? I'm sorry. Right. Iraq. That, Iran is also uh, a problem. Uh, <laughs> uh, first, he said, no, he said, uh, there's no way we're going to hold Ukraine. Uh, Iraq. <laughs> Afghanistan together. OK, he's like 79 years old, but he's 79 years old. This is why we don't want 79 year olds as president. I got you want this one. kind of solecism. What? Because um, the only place we were talking about this last night on our, our secret text thread and the only institution I saw promoting clips of this interview, which occurred last night, broadcast last night on NBC News, was the Republican National Committee. I hadn't seen anybody in media promoting this interview. And you know why? Because once you listen to these clips, it's positively unnerving. Here's another one where he's talking about you know, the, the risk to Americans in Ukraine. 
of whom there are thousands of Americans in Ukraine at any given moment. And this government has been saying, get out, please. And if you're still in Ukraine and listening to this and you're American, you're going to be abandoned. You're behind enemy lines. No one's going to help you. If Afghanistan didn't prove it to you, the president just made it very clear. He said, quote, I'm hoping that if, in fact, he's foolish enough to go in, meaning Putin and Ukraine, that he's smart enough to not, in fact, do anything that would negatively impact American citizens. What? Parse that sentence. He's foolish. He's smart. At the same time, he's not going to harm Americans, but he could if he goes in. Hardly reassuring. But then he wrapped it up by just saying, but if you're there, get out. Get out. Get out now. Because Putin it's is foolish be bad. and smart. Yeah. He's wily. He's an idiot. We don't know. Well, then the Afghanistan question, which for me was the he was asked by Lester Holt about this army report. You know, so this is his own military has issued a report saying what a disaster the withdrawal from Afghanistan was. Lester Holt asked him directly, what do you think of this? And he basically says, yeah, I reject that. I am. So uh, he was asked first. He says, no, 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 that's not what I was told that, you know, what, what the army report said is not what he was told. Asked if he rejected the findings based on sworn testimony from all these military commanders. Biden's response was, yes, I am. I'm rejecting them. Very Trumpian tone to that, I think. Um, again, another reason why this is you're only seeing conservatives promoting this interview. It really was a disaster on multiple fronts. It's that quote from the guy from Mythbusters. I reject your reality and substitute my own. <laughs> that's that's uh, our guiding political ethos now for the better part of uh, five, six years. I'm now going to propose a conspiracy theory of my own, because why not? Everyone has conspiracy theories, and I now have a conspiracy theory. I have no grounds for this. I have no in, inside knowledge or not, but it doesn't matter. Like I could go on Reddit and start a start a thread and, you know, in a week there would be one million people believing what I'm saying. It's not really a conspiracy theory because it's actually very banal, but um. Why is he so hawkish on this mask stuff? Because it's him, right? I mean, you know, in the end, it's him. Saki saying, you know, we're going by the CDC. The CDC says everybody should wear a mask everywhere, inside, everywhere. And that's what we say, because that's where we are. Biden's closest advisor is a hair doctor, professor, community college mop sweeper, Jill Biden. Uh, Jill Biden is a part of the edu blob. It's all her. All the mask policy, all the COVID hawkishness, all of that is her. She's with him 12 hours a day. She's walking him to the bathroom. She's changing his depends. She's making sure he doesn't trip when he falls down the stairs. She's taking him back to Delaware where he can get his blood transfusions in the basement. I don't know what it is. She is Edith Wilson. This is her policy. We're not getting off it until, you know, until he gets a mistress who changes his mind. Remember that her, the, some of the first citizens invited to the White House after he was inaugurated were teachers, the head of the teachers unions. Randy Weingarten is a close, bills herself on her own social media feed and has been promoted as such as a close friend, of personal friend of the Biden. So I don't think it's entirely conspiratorial to say that. Um, I will say that it doesn't just hold for the masking and for the for the school stuff and the closures. Uh, the excellent Corey Shockey from AEI has a good op-ed in the New York Times today making that argument for his foreign policy as well, saying the problem is that he has surrounded himself with yes men. And when he is challenged by, for example, people in the military about his withdrawal strategy from Afghanistan, he shuts them down. He's like, nope, nope, I'm right. I'm right. And that there is actually uh, his history as a senator and a vice president is actually burdening him right now and his ability to think in a nimble way and to respond to these changing circumstances and to actually make better decisions. So look, I mean, I mean uh, this may sound like a contradiction of what we've been saying, right? Which is, he says he rejects, right? He rejects what they're saying. He rejects it. Um, and I've, I've been saying, and Noah's been saying, and we've been saying, look, uh, you know, elected officials have to be responsible for the decisions made by governments. And he is the, he, the buck stops with him. He made the decision to pull out of Afghanistan. And so the buck stops with him. He, they come to him and he says he was right. He believes he was right. And he'll take, take the heat for it. That's fine. What he said effectively was that the people who are who uh, spoke for this report 
lied because his information was that everything went was hunky dory and that uh, all of these decisions that were made incorrectly in the run up to in the run up to pull the pull out of, of, of Kabul that, you know, ended up with the disaster that we saw and the continuing humanitarian disaster that 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 is present. And the fact that there are still at least 100 Americans who are trapped in Afghanistan. Uh, I don't even know what number there they would give if you asked the Ned Price at the State Department today. But I'm guessing he'd say about 100. Um, that all of that, that basically um, uh, they're lying and he's telling the truth. Which is a hell of a defense, because in that case, then he's saying, oh, well, yeah, we have a massive dissension problem in the military. Well, I mean, you know, it's the deep state. So Trump gets a deep state. He gets a deep state. My point is, like, he is going to face a reckoning. At least he will face a reckoning. I mean, I don't know who's going to what the how the reckoning functions, because, you know, these things are not one to one. That's the problem with political reckoning like we don't know we we're i think we could be pretty sure that glenn youngkin won in virginia based on the main two main issues that he was pushing on right which was um uh schools and you know parents and schools and the and the two related issues the uh, propagandizing the kids and you know running the schools based on uh, insane COVID protocols right that was basically, he said, vote for me if you're with that. Don't vote for me if you don't. And then people did and he won. Okay. But usually it's not that clear cut. And we don't even know if Biden's going to run again in 2024 to have this as a, as a, you know, as something that people are going to, are going to go at him on, but we will have an election in 2022. And there was that stunning poll, CNN poll that has Biden at 41%. And um, uh, disapproval, 50, yeah, disapproval 58. at uh, 58. And apparently a 56 percent of those in the uh, 58 uh, number asked if they could think of a single good thing that he did as president, could not think of a single good thing that he did as president. Now, that's not 56 percent of the people. It is 56 percent of the 58 percent. OK, so what is that? That's like. 30 some odd percent or something like that of the of, of the electorate can't think of a single good thing that biden has done even the puppy president. and the kitten adoption didn't fly like even that didn't work it's kind of shocking i mean it's kind of intuitive though i mean if you're really in the actively disprove list 41 percent very strongly disapprove yeah that roughly you know that disapprove of the disapprovers that number of disapprovers would disapprove of him very strongly i mean it's, it's sort of intuitive this is beyond disapproval though that would that's why it's sort of an interesting question and why it's kind of startling i mean and granted i'm not sure i could name i'm trying to think of a single good thing that he that he that he did as president i don't know i mean there he hasn't done like australia the australia sub deal i approve australia sub deal i'm for that that was good thank you that's excellent was a good choice uh on the on the australia sub deal um can I bring in one one thing from that poll that's really very striking? It's a digression, yes. but it's one that I think is very profound. Um, from the from the CNN write up of this poll, quote: sixty four percent of people with children under the age of eighteen said it was time to learn to live with the virus, while fifty four percent of those without young children said stopping the spread must continue to be our highest priority. This poll breaks down uh, the COVID regime resistance by demography by race, by gender, by partisan affiliation, all of it is inconclusive. That is conclusive. That is the divide. You mean, so if you have kids, we got to get over it. And if you like, don't oh, have white kids, people want this to go away and then African-Americans, Latinos kind of don't and Republicans want this to go away and Democrats kind of don't. But none of the divides are as profound as that. Can I can I just make this other point, which is th- this is an interesting question, right? Learn to live with the virus. Or uh, what is the other, what's the specific wording? Stopping the spread. It must continue to be our highest priority. Okay. Learning to live with the virus and stopping the spread of the virus are not contradictory things. They're mutually exclusive. They're not mutually exclusive. Uh, One of the ways that you might stop the spread is by learning to live with the virus. I mean, that's what we don't yet know about Omicron, which is to say if 35 million people got Omicron, which is one which is there's one one theory that 35 to 50 million people got Omicron. If they got antibodies, 
if we Omicroners got antibodies, learning to live with the virus by getting Omicron, which it's not that we really learned to live with the virus and we got Omicron, will help stop yeah. the spread. Like that's well, regardless, as a political yeah. calculation, you're right. staring in the face of doom. The people who vote are active in their communities reliably have children. People who are not reliable voters are maybe not as active in their community, certainly don't have the tether and ties to their and roots to their community as people with parents are those without children. And for the people without children, your experience with the pandemic is, is very limited unless you're in a major blue city and you have to you know, produce your vaccine card. You know, a lot of things are open. You probably don't have to experience the impositions of the pandemic on a day to day basis like you do if you have young kids. I just had the most horribly anti-sentimental comic idea that I should like write a screenplay about that just came to me because I'm like, look, there are people with children, right? And they're under 18. They're they're you know, they're 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 a significant minority of the population, people with kids under 18. But of course, every one of those people who has kids under 18 has parents, right? And their grandparents and their grandparents are seeing their grandchildren suffer and be in masks and can't spend time with them if they're being so hawkish, whatever. Here's my incredibly unsentimental idea. What if basically grandparents are like, this is great. I don't have to babysit. I'm sorry, I can't come over. You have your kids are under 18. I'm immunocompromised. I'm I I'm set. I have I have multiple, I have I have multiple comorbidities. You can't, I, I'm not, you can't go to a bar and expect me to come over and stay with your kids. I just want to watch Reacher on, on Amazon Prime and be left alone. Isn't that like a good plot? Did you see like a comic plot where like the grandparents of America are just thrilled beyond belief because you could make comedies anymore that would I know. be a good one but you get like you get a, you're finally getting a break because your kids are like oh we want to go to Aruba no I'm sorry I can't you, you know, I'm offended you never, by you never... your embrace of ageism here John just so offended I don't think that's funny at all <laughs> anyway my, my parents were, were too old by the time I had kids to really babysit effectively so you know I, I'm, I have my own I have my own bitterness on this on this front but I'm just saying I'm just saying that, um, you know, the whole thing about, yeah, yeah, I left my kids and my um, friends of mine were like, yeah, I left my kids with my, my, my parents. They were, oh, they love it all weekend. And I just remember this Freddie Roman, this uh, fantastic uh, Borschtbelt comic, Freddie Roman, who had this routine about the, the kids coming to Florida to visit, to visit, um, uh, you know, they get off the plane and grab and grab are there, hug and kiss and they, and they, and, and, you know, and then they go through the airport, they buy a snack, they get in the car and they're driving in the car and the kids are fighting in the backseat. And then it occurs to the two grandparents that they're going to have these two bastards for two weeks, for two weeks. It was great for the first 20 minutes, but now they're going to have them for two weeks. Anyway, this is my, so the polling may say, keep COVID restrictions forever so that I, my free babysitting regime is now at an end. If anybody likes that and you, if I see a screenplay in the next two years that uses that, I am suing. I'm suing whoever does it. I have this, I'm marking this down that this was my idea and you can't have it. Sure, your consulting fees are very affordable. <laughs> anyway, uh, so with that, you should watch Reacher, by the way, on Amazon Prime. It's a psychotic show, but I really enjoyed it. Anybody else have anything you watched worth commending? No? Well, I've been watching the Book of Boba Fett with, with my other Ooh, star. Is... One of my kids is a Star Wars fan. I, I, I oh, came around. I mean, they shouldn't have so called it about bad. Boba Fett because it went broad. But I mean, it wasn't bad. as good as The Mandalorian. But we it's did like the finale. bad. <laughs> you like the finale? I, it was okay. Yeah, it Maybe. was like the fight of planet with like six. <laughs> there were like six people fighting in an empty in, in, uh, nowhere, and then it was uh, it was not. I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> sorry. I'm glad that your kids are. This is the problem with sci-fi. They're teenage fandom, boys. <laughs> they're teenage boys, but they they can have they they you they need to become critical watchers, not just fanboy watchers. That's the problem. Like I listen to some of these fanboy podcast about things and all they do is desperately try to say everything is wonderful because they're so worried that the other fanboys well, well they hated them. they hated the eternals so that okay they well there like you Marvel go well and they hated know, the eternals well so. the eternals is hateful so that is a that is a good uh, abe you you watch like uh, obscure interesting well this isn't obscure but i don't okay. even know 
I've been watching the Gilded Age. Yeah, and it's okay. okay. Abe and I have been having a debate about the Gilded Age via yes. text. <laughs> it's very okay. I have a burning confusion about one aspect of the Gilded of the Gilded Age that I guess I'm going to air right now. Go ahead. So it's about New York in the 1880s and uh, this upper crust on the, on the, in the East 60s and a uh, new money family moves in and all the old money people disapprove. And for the first two episodes, there are a billion hints dropped that this new money family is Jewish, but it is never explicitly said. All sorts of other revelations come to light at the end of these episodes, and I'm waiting for, you know, uh, the husband or wife to pull out the Torah before bed or something, right? <laughs> they look Jewish. People talk about not approving of their tribe, their vulgarity, this, everything, right? So I'm like, why don't they reveal this? And then in the last episode, the son of the mother of this family made a joke about her ancestors picking potatoes in Kerry. So now I'm left, I'm so like they're Irish, which I would understand sociologically and historically, but they built up everything as if they were Jewish. That's my, I'm just confused. I read an article that, that interpreted it the same way I did it first that said, yes, they're Jewish, but it's not being, being said explicitly. And now I don't know what's happening. Yeah, I think they, they might've intentionally switched to Irish to be less dramatic because you're allowed to sort of, that, that's a group you're allowed to dump on now because now they're white, right? So it's fine. And there, there's not a lot of anti-Irish sentiment. So they had to like play it safe. And that's that's actually what I dislike about the show is how safe they play it. Plus Cynthia Nixon plays this spinster aunt. And I, and I at the same time I was watching that, I was watching the reboot of Sex and the City where she's Miranda and it was just too much. Uh, it, it just, that show was also bad. So it was, it was a challenge for me to kind of get in the mind of her as a spinster aunt, but. This uh, confusion of Irish and Jewish allows me to end the podcast on my favorite yogiism which is that upon being told that the mayor of Dublin, this is in the 50s and 60s, Bobby Briscoe, Robert Briscoe, was Jewish, Yogi Berra said, only in America. <laughs> and with that, we will reconvene on Monday. Have a wonderful weekend. For Abe, Christina, Noah, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.